Hello, this is Camille Broderick, the host of Camille's Demi Hour, a 30-minute show dedicated to sharing an inside perspective of the Epicurean world here on Nantucket Island. You will hear from those voices who represent this fascinating place. And lastly, we hope to educate on wine, healthy cooking, and the agricultural and sustainable community here on Nantucket. And I would love to thank my underwriter this year, the Nantucket Culinary Center. One landmark building, three innovative floors, in a community-minded place to cook, dine, and gather. So one of the many popular festivals on the island here, we have the film festival, we have a wine festival, and we have the Nantucket Book Festival, just to mention a few of the most popular ones here. And with this festival, there are top, top authors that come to the island, and we were really lucky. I asked the president of the Nantucket Book Festival, the director, Annie from Annie's Whole Foods, who might be an interesting guest for the show. She was really, really kind and passed along this this gentleman's information. And when she passed along his name, I almost fell off my chair because I have books of his on my shelf and he has been known to be one of the top food writers, which is one of the fastest growing subjects currently. His name is Michael Ruhlman and it is a delight to have him on Camille's Demi Hour this season. So welcome, Michael. Tell us what it's like to come to the festival for the first time this year. It's a well-known and highly regarded book festival and there's a lot of first flight authors there and it's in such a beautiful place, and um, I'm just very excited to be attending. I've never been. Well, you'll just have a great time, especially since it's your first time here on Nantucket. But uh, I do want to talk about your first book, which really, well, one of your first books, that the book that put you on the map, which was The Making of a Chef. Tell us about that experience, because you went to the extent of applying to the CIA and trying to go to the CIA to actually give a firsthand account. It was more of like an expose of a, of a story and about being a chef. Were you just trying to get a good story, and have you just taken this wave of the food and wine world? Yeah, I've actually, I have talked about that before, but I, I haven't been asked explicitly about that. Um, I went to the CIA to get a good story, and... I expected to get in, get out, and move on to the next thing. And I kind of did that. But what happened to me at the CIA changed me. I realized three weeks in that in order to write about what it meant to be a chef, you really had to become one because the changes are so interior. The changes you can't really see. And, you know, my chef instructor basically said, you're not good enough to do this. And I said, I'm going to become a cook. And so I became a cook. And that really changed everything. Changed the way I... I approached life, the way I approached challenges. Um, I didn't say no. It changed the way I wrote. I mean, after the CIA, where I determined that I would be a cook and do all the work I needed to get my book done and took on the ethos of the professional kitchen, which is you work your ass off. Um, you work really hard and you don't complain. And if you complain, just quit. And when I got back to Cleveland, my wife said, we're going to be broke in four months. You have to write this book in four months. And I didn't think you could write a book in four months. I couldn't anyway. It took me nine months to do the last one after, you know, nine months of reporting. And, but I didn't think that way anymore. I thought like a cook. And I thought, okay, I've got four months. I'm going to write a book in four months. And I figured out how many words a day I had to write five days a week um, to have 90,000 words or whatever it was on the contract. Uh, and I did that. I had a book in four months. And that made me realize that you can do a lot more than you think if you don't have a choice and if you push yourself. And humans are lazy and we tend not to push ourselves. And learning to cook 
taught me how to push myself. I've worked in a kitchen before, and I learned not necessarily how to cook per se, but I learned what it took to be in a kitchen and work in a kitchen, and you do work your tail off. Yeah. Everyone does. Very, yeah, under very difficult circumstances. It's very hot. Hours are long, and it's just grueling work. So how did you decide to maybe even go back to writing versus be a chef? Was there You've embedded yourself so much into the culture of, of cooks and the restaurants uh, that you've done the job yourself. Was that all a journalistic approach, or do you feel that maybe you could have been in this industry? So after I finished in four months making a chef, I had no work. I was a cook and who didn't cook, and I was a writer who didn't have anything to write. I couldn't sell a book. And by the following June, I was just, you know, we had run out of all our money, and I, I said, hey, I've scammed a free education. I can be a cook. And I love the world. I was fascinated by it still. I just learned the basics, and I want to learn more. And I needed a paycheck. So I went to this woman, Susie Heller, out in the Sticks of Cleveland at a restaurant called The Sticks, barbecue joint. I knew she was really well-connected with chefs in the chef world, and I thought she could get me a, a job with the best chef in Cleveland because I knew I had to keep learning, and I also wanted to make some money. She saw all the stuff I was doing. She saw the, the publicity material for the Making of a Chef book, and she said, I didn't know you were doing all this. I'm working with Thomas Keller and his cookbook, and we're looking for a writer. And, I, you know, I just I walked out of that restaurant, more or less, with a ticket to the French Laundry and to write a cookbook with, at the time, the most revered chef in the country. That was the one book a friend gave to me, and I brought it on the ferry, and I opened up the chapter of when that moment <laughs> When that moment I, happened. I, yes, I wrote about that moment. It was serendipitous. You know, serendipitous is not strong enough. Um, think about it. I have never published nationally a word about food. I'm an unknown writer. I'm unemployed. I'm broke. I go out to the middle of Ohio to a barbecue restaurant to talk to the, the proprietor. And I walk out with a ticket to the French Laundry to work with Thomas Keller. Yeah, it's unbelievable. It's I'm I don't want to say I believe in God, but if anything tells me there's a God, there's a God there. And that God was saying, "Look, Michael, I know you want to write fiction, but you're good at this. Yeah. You're going to go here." Right. And I, I turned out I was I, I had a knack. I just had had a knack for it. And I, so I, I learned all the basics at the Culinary Institute of America, and then I went out to the best restaurant in the country to find out. What happens when you take those basics to their farthest extremes? Mm. And I learned all that. So suddenly I was a journalist with all this knowledge um, about food and cooking and the ethos of a kitchen. And it was just meant to be. And it happened to be at a time the, the wave was just cresting. And I caught that wave. I just It was all yeah. luck. And it just happened to be when this phenomenal interest in food and cooking took off. Mm-hmm. When the Food Network took off, when chefs became celebrities, uh, and I was there to watch it happen. I feel that it is a renaissance. Um, I feel lucky to have been in this industry at this point in my life and to have met the Jean-Louis Paladin, the Thomas Kellers, briefly, as I've described to you, not to the intimate degree that you have. But if we were to think 50 years in the future, what do you think you could describe this time in this, in this uh, industry? 50 years in the future? Yeah, what do you think they'll be saying about us? Those chefs, that they changed the culture, people now farm, people now eat better, they've completely economically changed the landscape? That's a really good question. Um, I think they will be saying that. Uh, I think they'll be saying that 
this generation of American chefs were probably the most important and influential generation of chefs in the history of the world for what they did, for making us see the world, for making us understand the importance of our resources. Mm-hmm. Um, we've, we're terribly confused about food. Our country is obese and sick, and it's because of our food. And we, we've always looked to chefs for the answers to what's going on. And they've, in large measure, told us and helped us to understand it and, I think, be better consumers. So I think it's they, chefs will get better and better. They'll continue to educate us more. And, yeah, I think this is, a, this is sort of a watershed moment in our culinary history where we better appreciate what our food means, how to eat, and the importance of cooking. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're the only animal that cooks. Mm-hmm. Animals do everything else that we do. Mm-hmm. They have sex for fun. They have theory of mind. No other animal cooks. We stopped cooking for ourselves, and suddenly we became terribly sick. And when you start, when something you need to survive starts making you sick, you become obsessive about it. You know, if you didn't have any air right now, you'd be very obsessive about air, even though you probably haven't thought about air all day long. Right. And chefs are a way out and a, a, way, a way into the information, not a way out, but a way into what matters and what doesn't. There are some other writers, like I would, I would bring up maybe Michael Pollan, and now he's segueing into video, into Netflix series, um, explaining the history of food for us to think about our food more. With your experience and by being with these great minds who've uh, affected this industry, what have you learned from, from them? I could say, oh, what is it like spending time with Thomas Keller? But reality, what have you learned from them from their perspective? Um, yeah, they were, for the most part, just sharing their passions and their gifts. Um, and they happened to do so at a time when America was ready to embrace their passions. Um, and we did so on a scale that is nationwide and not just located in New York City and San Francisco and Chicago. Um, it's in Cleveland. It's in Milwaukee. You've traveled with Anthony Bourdain. You've gone to dinners with these chefs. Uh, you've sat and joined and had meals with them, which is really the center of when people can have these discussions. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I've learned during all this time, what I've learned through all these experiences with these chefs, I think, is how to have a good time. And food has to do with it. Food and uh, drink? Yeah. You know, Brendan Gill in, the, in a great book called Here at the New Yorker said, the number one rule in life is to have a good time. Rule number two is to hurt as few people along the way as possible. Mm-hmm. There is no third rule. And chefs kind of know that. And when our food is good, um, our families are good, our communities are good, our environment is good, and life is happy and, and productive. Uh, when our food is sh- life is. And that's what happened, and chefs are showing us the way back. And people are appreciating it. You know, we're still sort of crazy with paleo and gluten-free and all this. And, you know, we still think that fat makes us fat, that fat is bad, um, that salt is bad. You know, all this stuff is getting rethought. Uh, I did a, an op-ed for the Washington Post that got a lot of traction because it was titled, uh, Your Food is Not Healthy, Kale Isn't Healthy. Even kale isn't healthy. Um, and it's not. Um, and we have to, um, kale is nutritious. We are healthy. Mm-hmm. Food isn't healthy. We are healthy if we eat nutritious food. And so when we start to think about food as being nutritious, then it's more clearly when you're trying to make a decision on what to purchase, you can say, is this nutritious? Not is it healthy, 
because every food is claiming to be healthy on its package, and we're finally starting to wake up and pay attention. Yeah, I mean, the term all natural on a package means absolutely nothing. I agree. It does. It means nothing. And organic may be the organic product, but it may not have been processed in a sustainable way. Uh, It may not be processed in a sustainable way. That's correct. Um, And people... I think the packaging and marketing propaganda, it's still powerful, as we can easily see. Oh, it's very hard to, to get rid of. It's what we know or suspect is, is bad is sugar. Instead of taking the good stuff out of the fat tree, half and half, which is dairy fat, which is good, um, and they've replaced it with sugar and corn syrup, which is bad for us. And yet, that's what people will reach for. And it drives me bananas. People should just eat bananas instead. And thank you for listening. This is Camille Broderick with Camille's Demi Hour on 89.5, Nantucket's NPR station. And we are very, very fortunate to have this guest on the show today. His name is Michael Ruhlman, and he is an author of over 21 books, a James Beard Award winner, and he is coming to the Nantucket Book Festival uh, this weekend. There's a lot of people I'd like to meet. Like Diane Reem's supposed to be there, Sebastian mm. Younger and Alice Hoffman and some wonderful Wonderful writers. Hope to meet. You ventured into fiction as well. Do you feel a calling there still sometimes or really, really delved into this world and, and see still a lot of things that you want to share? Um, well, I've, I've wanted to be a writer since I was in fifth grade. And I always wanted to write fiction. I wrote two novels went in my desultory youth um, that got me an agent but didn't get sold. And then when my writing mentor, Reynolds Price, died, I started writing an essay about it. And it sort of morphed into... Um, a novella, um, and then it became one of three that I published last fall called In Short Measures. And it, it, it allowed me, after all these years of just writing about food and chefs, to explore other parts of humanity um, and the things that I care about most, which is love, young love, mature love, fidelity, infidelity, and those very human matters in, in a way that I haven't been able to write. And I loved it and, and hope to continue doing it. Mm-hmm. I'll always be writing about food and, and cooking. That, that I'm good at it, and, and that's what makes the money. But I also need to uh, satisfy other parts of my, my, my writing. Life isn't just about food and cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, though, it's fun, if, though if you don't have food and cooking in your life, life's not very good. But, you know, it allows me to explore parts of, of being alive that don't really pertain to cooking and chefing. So, I, so I've really loved it. It's been a real. I've been so grateful to be able to publish fiction, and, uh, and it's been a great reward. And, and I hope to keep doing more of it. As a writer, and if that's your craft and your art and your gift, I would imagine you would shift into different genres and experience different things. And yeah, but it's kind of it's kind of hard because I, well, it, it doesn't get a lot of attention because everybody thinks of me as a food writer and a cookbook writer, and so you, one gets pigeonholed, regrettably. It's like the actors who only do comedy. Yeah. (laughs) They have to break into drama. Yeah. (laughs) So what was the experience being on television? Did you like being on TV? Do you like the media behind all this, aside from Uh, the the written word? Being on TV is great because TV reaches so many people. So in terms of just sure promotion, uh, it's great. And just recognition, it's great. I mean, authors need to be recognized so that people will buy their books and et cetera. there's a lot of waiting around in television, which I don't like. I like to get things done. I like to be productive. But when you do TV, like, for hours doing nothing, waiting for them to, to reset the set. So I don't like that part about it. But it's such a powerful medium that when it's done well, for example, by 
Bourdain and his very limited but talented crew, it's a great pleasure. And, you know, being on Tony's show, it's just a, a blast. It, it's very much like the show itself. Um, you, you, do, you do go to these places and you do have all that fun and you do drink all that wine and you do do these crazy things. And it's all very, you know, it's like Tony, who's just such a smart, talented individual and a very loyal and, and extraordinary person. It's just fun. So, yeah, I like that part. You feel the movement in that show and the energy. You do feel like you're part of the team when, you, when you're going on these trips. That show, is, it's enticing. It pulls you in. It really does. And they, and they do it because they, they don't travel with this big crew. They travel with like three or four people, and that's it. And so it's really lean, and it's really effective. Do you think the TV world is a little bit, it's, there's too much going on? Stupid. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's not teaching people how to cook. But I think the Food Network found out early on that, uh, that educational food shows do about as well as any educational show will do. It'll do as well as anything on PBS. Uh, and, so, and they wanted big ratings, so they went with the entertainment. Food TV is all about entertainment. People don't, want, don't watch TV to learn how to cook. I think they, they watch food TV because it's sublimated cooking that they're not doing. It's stimulation and it's entertainment. It's entertainment, yeah, and it's not information. I mean, it's no longer the days of Julia. She was she was brilliant at it. She's, she's inspired me to make my first pie when I was in fourth grade, and she was one of a kind and a force of nature in her own right. Mm-hmm. Again, you've written over 21 books. You've worked with Thomas Keller on several occasions, Eric Repair. You've written both cookbooks and your own books. Um, what's on the schedule next? Are you looking at other projects food-related, or are you um, taking a break and maybe moving towards fiction? And I'm finishing the writing of uh, a book about grocery stores and where our food comes from. Mm-hmm. And a part of the retail market that nobody ever thinks about but is more important than we realize, you know, your local grocery store. Mm-hmm. The ability to buy food 24 hours a day Seven days a week is, is an extraordinary luxury that we don't appreciate. And so I want to take a look at grocery stores and see how they work, see how they operated, and see what they meant to contemporary culture. So I'm working on that. I'm working on a book with the chef Jean-Georges Van Grichten. Maybe get back to fiction if I can afford to, if I can afford the time. I do want to ask that question that I wrote to you about is how do you define a foodie? Because that term is uh, somehow gets under my skin now because I feel a lot of people say that they're a foodie, but I think that term has evolved. What do you think about it? Does it, does it get under your skin too now? Yeah, it does. Absolutely. I hate the term. Um, <laughs> there's no better term to replace it. Maybe that signals the problem. It's just, it, it doesn't, it doesn't really mean anything anymore. Mm-hmm. And, but then again, you know, I, what would I, Replace it with food enthusiast. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's true, but uh, gourmand, mm-hmm. Thomas Keller, what he suggested, replace foodie, but that doesn't quite do it either. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Hopefully, I'm hoping that everyone or almost everyone becomes a foodie in that they care about their food, where it comes from, how it affects their lives. Um, and therefore, we don't even use the word foodie anymore because it ceases to mean anything at all. That's my hope. You said that these chefs have helped educate people about food. Um, is there another way to educate people out there? Because it is a concentration. Uh, obviously, California, West Coast, more cosmopolitan areas, the Boston, New York, Northeast area. They're some of the most educated people as buyers and as consumers. How do we educate the rest of the country about about this? The country has to want the information. I don't think you can 
club them with it and have them understand. Um, you can't force them to understand the relationship between their food and, and their happiness, their food and their health, uh, unless they want to know. Mm-hmm. And often people don't want to know until they get sick, and then they want to know really bad. I, I, I think it's just a slow generation of uh, understanding how fundamental food is and how important it is that we cook our own food um, or have somebody who does that, you know, everybody shouldn't, doesn't need to cook. And that would be kind of a nightmare. But someone in your clan or your tribe or your family um, should be doing the cooking. And you should, if you're not doing the cooking, you should help with the other work of cooking. You know, we think of cooking as being a, a headache or a hassle. People say, I don't have time to cook. We don't hear people saying, God, I, I love showering, but I just have no time. <laughs> Excellent uh, point. You, that you don't it, hear people say that. No, it, it's, 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 but, but they say I'm too busy to cook. I love cooking, but I'm too busy to cook. I love good food, but I'm too busy. It's all a matter of what, what we think is important. And, and I think chefs are, and I and, and other writers like Michael Pollan, um, who's been so enormously influential, understand this and are, are trying to tell people how important the act of cooking is. It's fundamental to our humanity. Mm-hmm. And we forget that at our peril. Well, we no longer have that magazine gourmet, but I, I still love the, the tagline for gourmet. It's, it's just gourmet every day. <laughs> You can cook every day and make something special, even if it's with three ingredients and it could take you five minutes. A beautiful bread, a beautiful olive oil, and a sliced tomato. That's, that's a meal. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's people, I don't know. I think we were taught by marketers that, that cooking is hard and that they're going to make it easier for us by selling us their product. And it's just not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, a, 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 a hard-boiled egg that's just out of the pan and still warm with a piece of really good cheddar cheese and a beer is a great meal. It is a great meal. Period. And many people ate that for years, and they were peasants in England 100 years ago. Yeah, caramelize some onions in a pan, pour water in it, and a little sherry or or red wine vinegar, and eat it with some toasted cheese. You've got a beautiful, you know, a a beautiful meal. And that, that, you know, that's French onion soup. But all it is is a peasant soup of onions caramelized, uh, water added so that the, all the flavors get distributed, uh, seasoned with some salt and some acidity, uh, and served with uh, a lovely bread and, and gratin cheese. Uh, a great meal. The best meal. You know, all chefs will tell you that their, their favorite food is, is, not the, is not fancy four-star cuisine, but really it's the roasted chicken. It's the great onion soup. That's what chefs like to eat. Yeah, I think I listened to Michael White speak, um, the chef in, in London. Uh, the I'm sure you oh, know. Oh, Marco? Marco, Marco White. White. Yes, Marco White, yes. And, Mike, uh, Michael White's a New York City Mike- chef who you would have been eating at when you lived here probably. <laughs> yes, <laughs> hence my confusion. But Marco Pierre White, what a, what a force. So he was the youngest chef to win any uh, three-star Michelin, and he – I think they asked him that question. You know, I think all great chefs like that question. What was what would be your favorite last meal of of your life? And he just said, you know, a bowl of pasta, um, yeah. something just as simple as that, which is is a beautiful thing in itself. But you wrote that great book, Romans Twenty. Um, Romans Twenty, R U H L M A N, Romans Twenty. And because I wrote that, because I wanted to tell people that the cooking is easy. There there are basically twenty things you need to know in order to cook anything. And so I wrote a book devoted to that idea. 
Well, it it was funny. We were talking about who your audience is. Is it chefs? Is it uh, food enthusiasts, as you would say? Yeah, well, I certainly have a huge following among chefs, um, and it's humbling for works like that that honestly portray the work of of professional cooking, and also books that they like, like Charcuterie, uh, has been uh, highly regarded among chefs, and I think it's the most stolen cookbook in America. Well, it's a a real honor to uh, have chefs respond that way to my work. Well, listen, Michael, I don't want to take any more time of, of yours today, but I do hope I get to meet you in person at some point. Well, thank you again so much for your time. Have a wonderful weekend at the Nantucket Book Festival. And if you were just tuning in, we were speaking with Michael Ruhlman. He is the author of over 21 books, uh, and he is attending the Nantucket Book Festival. And so I would definitely suggest to look him up if, if you are at all interested in anything relating to the food world and the restaurant world. Thank you. I'm, ha- I'm looking forward to it and happy to be here. Thanks so much, Michael. Thank you, Camille. Oh, yeah. And thanks again for listening to Camille's Demi Hour on Nantucket's NPR station. We are here every Saturday and Sunday at 1 p.m. following the NPR News. And if you have any feedback or ideas for the shows, please contact us at nantucketnpr.org. Enjoy your Nantucket summer and cheers.